Bite-Sized Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, September 20th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Elizabeth Kenny. She was born on this day in 1880. So I have Rosalind Russell to thank for this one. She's always been one of my favorite comedic actresses of the golden era of Hollywood. Her rapid-fire dialogue, her impeccable comic timing, and that larger-than-life screen presence are just unmatched. If you are not familiar with her, I definitely recommend watching His Girl Friday, The Women, the 1939 version, and Auntie Mame. For Auntie Mame, make sure it's Rosalind's version. Lucille Ball did a version, and as much as I love Lucy, not her finest hour. So give those three a shot if you're not familiar with Rosalind uh, Russell's life. So I knew that Rosalind had also done some dramatic films, but being more of a comedy-type moviegoer, I hadn't seen any of them. Then the other night, I was watching a documentary on Rosalind Russell called Life is a Banquet, and there was a clip in there from a 1946 movie of hers called Sister Kenny. And from what I gathered from the documentary, the plot centered around this self-taught Australian bush nurse who invents a new and effective and far less painful therapy for children with polio and basically ends up founding the practice of physical therapy, all while battling the male-dominated medical establishment that frowned upon this kind of upstart nurse. And I was like, hmm, okay, interesting topic. And when I looked up the movie, I realized it was a true story. So I immediately jump over to Elizabeth Kenny's Wikipedia page, and I am just hooked. This woman was such a pioneer. She helped so many people, and she is virtually unknown to a lot of the world today. I shouldn't say the world, right? I'm speaking as someone in the U.S., and as the U.S., we often forget that we are not the world. But maybe in Australia, she's more of a well-known figure. I would love to know. If you are an Australian listener, um, I would love to get your feedback on whether or not Sister Kenny is a more widely known figure. So as it turns out, uh, Sister Kenny, Elizabeth Kenny, was uh, treating Rosalind Russell's nephew, which is how Rosalind came to fall in love with the idea of playing her. And even though the film um, Sister Kenny didn't do super hot at the box office, Rosalind was actually nominated for an Oscar for her role. So without further ado, let's learn about Sister Elizabeth Kenny. We need to first clear up the sister part, though. She was not a nun, but in Britain and the Commonwealth countries, such as Australia back then, the title sister was used for a highly skilled nurse. So Elizabeth Kenny was born in Waralda in New South Wales in Australia. Waralda is a little town in the northwest slopes region of New South Wales, about 300 miles north of Sydney. The term Waralda, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, means place of wild honey, and it's situated on the bank of a creek um, of the same name. As of 2011, the population was around 1,000 people. Elizabeth's mom, Mary, had been born in Australia while her father, Michael, was an Irish immigrant. Elizabeth went by Lisa as a child, and she was educated at home by her mom. When she was 17, she was horseback riding, and she fell off of her steed, snapping her wrist in the process. So her family took her to this specialist in Queensland, Dr. Anias MacDonald. While she healed, she remained there under the care of the doctor. And as any kid can tell you, there are few things more boring than being limited on physical activity when recovering from an injury. So to pass the time, she read Dr. McDonald's medical textbooks and studied his model skeletons. 
And it was at that time that she developed a lifelong fascination with bones and muscles and how they worked together. She also ended up forming a deep respect and a friendship with, with Dr. McDonald, and he would go on to become her medical mentor later in life. When she left Dr. McDonald's care, she wanted to keep studying anatomy, but all model skeletons were reserved for medical students, so she made her own. How exactly she made her own um, isn't specified. I'm assuming that she didn't have access to piles of spare bones, so she must have used some kind of modeling clay or a malleable material of some sort. But as of this point, human anatomy, muscles and bones was still just like a fascination for her, and it wasn't a career um, as of that time. So she becomes a certified religious instructor and she teaches Sunday school for a while, uh, simultaneously giving private piano lessons. She actually had taught herself how to play beautifully when she was a teenager. This was a short-lived chapter because she ended up moving to Gyra in South Wales, staying with her grandmother for a little bit and then with a cousin. Then in a very Monty Python and now for something completely different kind of move, she began working as an agricultural sales broker for Gyra farmers and the markets in Brisbane. She was like the kind of go-between person between the farmers and the markets who were buying their produce. And she was apparently really good at her job and she made a comfortable living and she was able to accumulate a good amount of savings. But she still kind of felt called to medicine and healing, so she switched career paths again, and this time the career path headed her straight towards her destiny. But the first step was a small one. She took a job working in the kitchen at a local midwife's hospital called uh, Scotia. From that job, she was able to get a letter of recommendation from a Dr. Harris at the hospital. And she then took some of her savings from her agricultural brokerage work, and she paid a local seamstress in town to make her a nurse's uniform. So, armed with her official-looking uniform and a letter from Dr. Harris, as well as her accumulated knowledge from her study with Dr. McDonald and her observations at the midwife's hospital, she moved to Nobby to work as a bush nurse. Nobby is a super small town with a population that hovers around 500. It's 115 miles southwest of Brisbane, and it's a very rural town, even to this day. Its one claim to fame is that Elizabeth Kenny worked there. So what is a bush nurse exactly? It's basically a nurse that works in extremely rural areas in Australia where there's no hospitals. They still exist today, but today they drive or take helicopters uh, and the critically ill can be airlifted out of wherever they are. When Elizabeth was working as a bush nurse, she only had her feet and a horse to access her patients. Bush nurses usually had midwife training because they were often called out to help deliver babies, but they also had to see every kind of illness and injury that a human can present with. And back then, Elizabeth would have to treat everyone using only whatever supplies she was able to carry with her. So Elizabeth next uh, opens up a place called St. Canis's. It's a cottage hospital, basically a, a little medical clinic in a home. And she focused there on delivering babies and helping people to recover from severe injuries and illnesses. In 1911, she was treating a child alongside a local doctor named Dr. Horn, and she had wired her old mentor, Dr. McDonald, for feedback on what was going on with this little girl's symptoms. And he suggested that it was infantile paralysis. That's what they called uh, polio back then. So unsure what to do next, Elizabeth asked him for his advice, and he gave her probably some of the best advice I think a doctor could give to another person in the medical field. He said, treat the patient according to the symptoms as they present themselves. So Elizabeth felt that the muscles were simply tight, so she applied hot woolen blanket compresses to the little girl's legs, 
And when the little girl regained consciousness, she said that she felt much better. And she asked Elizabeth again for the, quote, rags that well my legs. Elizabeth uh, kept on utilizing this treatment when similar cases presented themselves, and for the most part, kids seemed to recover with no side effects. It's possible that these children had polio, but whatever the diagnosis, she had made them all feel much better and without putting them through a lot of painful and unnecessary medical nonsense. In 1915, she began work as a nurse in World War I. Even though she was not an officially certified nor formally trained nurse, there was such a dire need for medical assistance that she was accepted and sent to Europe. The next two years, she would work on something ominously called a dark ship. These boats passed between Australia and England with all of their lights off at all times to avoid being seen, obviously. They took supplies and soldiers to England, then they came back to Australia with wounded soldiers and goods to be traded. These were extremely stressful, dangerous missions, and Elizabeth did 16 of them, as well as one around-the-world trip that took her to the Panama Canal. Due to her wartime service, she was awarded the title of sister, which to remind you once again, is not a religious thing. It was used to indicate that she was a skilled nurse. Today, we, we would call it, you know, kind of the equivalent of being an RN. Some people kind of grumbled back then under their breath that, you know, she hadn't completed any official schooling, but at that point, she had treated so many people so well that she probably had just as much, if not more knowledge than someone that had gone to traditional schooling at that time to become a sister. In the Australian Army Nursing Corps, the title sister is the equivalent of a first lieutenant. By the end of the war, she was absolutely exhausted, so she stopped taking the dark ship trips and she worked at a soldier's hospital in Brisbane for a while before her health started to suffer as a result of the stress and she was honorably discharged and issued a pension. So she returned to the little town of Nobby and she created a temporary hospital to care for the victims of the 1918 flu pandemic. Once the pandemic died down, she returned home to Gyra to rest, but she was still really ill and really weak. So she ended up going back to Europe for a bit of what we would kind of call a, a rest cure. So she saw some specialists there and they helped her to totally regain her, her strength and her health. So she goes back to Nobby again, but she's only there for a couple of days before a friend of hers uh, from Gyra asks her to come there and work with her daughter, Daphne, who had been diagnosed with cerebral diplegia or what we call today cerebral palsy. Elizabeth used a lot of her techniques of warm compresses and hot baths and gentle muscle movements to help ease Daphne's discomfort and her muscle spasms. So uh, Elizabeth ends up going back to working out of her house as a nurse while she's also caring for her elderly mother. Elizabeth's neighbor, Stan, had a motorcycle with a sidecar, and whenever she had to get to a patient far away, he would give her a ride in his sidecar. So one day, Stan's sister Sylvia falls into the path of his horse-drawn plow and she was trampled and needed medical help. So Stan carried her back to his house and called for Elizabeth. Sensing that to move Sylvia would be detrimental to her recovery, Elizabeth tore down a cupboard door and strapped Sylvia to it to prevent her from moving her spine. They phoned for an ambulance and Elizabeth rode with Sylvia the 26 miles to the closest doctor, which happened to be Dr. McDonald. Between Elizabeth's care and Dr. McDonald, Sylvia recovered very well from the incident. 
The improvised uh, Sylvia stretcher, as Elizabeth called it, was something the local ambulance had never seen before. So Elizabeth made a more finessed prototype and she ended up uh, selling it to ambulances in Europe and Australia and the US. And she gave all of the proceeds from her sales to the County Women's Association. Elizabeth returns to Nobby uh, to continue working as a nurse. In 1931, she meets the Rawlinson family, and they ask her to come work with their niece, Maud, who was bedridden by polio. After 18 months of working with uh, Elizabeth, Maud was not only able to walk, she was also able to eventually get married and have a baby. The local papers were touting this as a new cure, and since Queensland, Australia was seeing its highest number of polio cases in the last 30 years, Elizabeth was asked to come there and help set up a rudimentary polio clinic uh, where she would see mostly pediatric patients. Her success rates were so outstanding that the Queensland Health Department came to see what she was doing. They were so impressed that they set up several more Kenny clinics, as they were called, in major cities in Australia, with Elizabeth going around and training the staff at each one in her novel practices. So why was her technique so novel and so effective? Before we talk about that, we need to talk about what polio is and how it was kind of treated before she came into the picture. So polio was the most notorious illness of the 20th century until it was eclipsed by AIDS in the 1980s. It was the terror of parents between the late 1800s up until the 1950s, as it happened mostly to babies and children. It was a virus, so it did not respond to whatever medication was available at the time for bacterial infections, which was basically just penicillin. Um, it was transmitted through everything from people to infected water and food. So almost everything and everyone could be the carrier of this horrible virus that caused everything from paralysis and painful spasming of the muscles to the weakening and shrinking of muscles to, you know, the sort of falling apart of all the muscles around your lungs, making it hard to breathe. That's why people ended up in iron lungs back then. Uh, and kids could either recover, they could recover partially, they could be paralyzed, or they could die. It was just this horrific disease that had any number of outcomes, and no one knew kind of what path to take to ensure recovery. So polio was first recorded in an ancient Egyptian engraving between 1403 and 1365 BCE, which showed a man named Roma the doorkeeper with a shriveled leg. In 1789, a British doctor named Michael Underwood first came up with a working description of the symptoms of polio. In 1840, polio was first declared to be contagious. In 1894, there was the first small outbreak of polio um, in Vermont, but the first real major U.S. epidemic was in New York in 1916. There were 9,000 cases and over 2,300 deaths. That year alone would see 27,000 people, mostly children, coming down with it and over 6,000 of them dying. At the uh, turn of the century, doctors across the world were trying to better understand what polio was, what caused it, and how it was transmitted. It was discovered to be a virus in 1908, and it was found to flare up in July through September, and it hit regions very randomly, regardless of population density or geographic location. In 1911, the first case popped up in Tans uh, Tasmania, and by 1922, all the Australian states had been affected by it. In 1938, FDR established the March of Dimes to fund a polio vaccine. That same year, Australia had its highest rate of paralytic polio, 39 out of every 100,000 people. So in 1955, 
There's the polio vaccine, but this mass polio vaccination program the U.S. launched was a disaster at first. The vaccine had not been uh, properly inactivated. Remember, a vaccine um, basically gives you a little bit of an inactivated uh, disease so your body can fight it off without going into full-blown infection mode. If it's not properly uh, inactivated, then you're just giving someone a shot of polio. So the vaccine had not been properly inactivated by Cutter Labs in California, and it basically gave 40,000 children polio. 200 children ended up being permanently paralyzed by it, and 10 of them ended up dying. So development and proper storage and proper inactivation continue to develop, and the work of Dr. Jonas Salk and Dr. Albert Sabine finally paid off, and now we have a polio vaccine that has essentially eradicated polio. I say essentially because there are a very small amount of wild polio cases that crop up here and there. And there's always those people that refuse to vaccinate their kids and they're shockingly seeing their children coming down with illnesses and ailments that we already have prevention for. So PSA, vaccinate your kids. Thank you. So polio, thankfully today, is not the enormous public threat to kids that it was 100 years ago. If the idea of muscle paralysis and painful muscle spasms sounds bad to you, just listen to what the prescribed medical treatment for it was. So imagine that you have a really bad spasming muscle cramp in, let's say, your calf. Would you like rub it and apply heat to it to try and relax the muscle? Or would you keep your leg as stiff and immobile as humanly possible and not let anything touch it? We all know the answer today, right? But back then, the medical community literally believed the best way to treat the painful muscle spasms and paralysis that children dealt with on account of polio was to immobilize children's entire bodies in rigid plaster casts and then later strap their legs into metal braces. That scene in Forrest Gump where he's running and he breaks out of his little polio leg braces, like those were the kind of braces that kids had to wear back then for polio. Um, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, Tiny Tim, right? His little shriveled legs and his stick. He was a polio victim as well. So thankfully, Elizabeth had more common sense than these doctors and was like, um, that's barbaric and painful and unnecessary and it doesn't even make sense. She understood that when a muscle is locking up or spasming, it needs heat and gentle massage and stretching in order to relax. So she tried to offer her services at some of the larger hospitals to provide these therapeutic treatments to their pediatric polio patients. But doctors told her that she was not allowed to touch a child until after their muscle spasms had subsided, therefore effectively rendering her physical therapy much less effective. So she continues to treat her own patients in her clinics using hot compresses and hot baths and what she called passive exercises to strengthen the muscles, which was the foundation of what we know today as physical therapy. When the children that she worked with were compared to the children who suffered with the traditional medical regime of plaster casts and metal braces, the kids that Elizabeth worked with recovered much quicker and with far fewer side effects. In 1937, she wrote a book called The Treatment of Infantile Paralysis in the Acute Stage, which basically outlined her methodology and, and treatment plans. In 1943, she wrote a more complete and comprehensive version of this book called The Kenny Concept of Infantile Paralysis and Its Treatment. In the late 30s and early 40s, she was busy setting up clinics throughout Australia, and she was even called to England to set one up there. Of course, a lot of the medical establishments were questioning her methodology and issuing statements about how could this bush nurse know nearly as much as all of us old white men with beards. 
The British Medical Association actually called out the Queensland government, essentially asking them how could they dare to fund these medical clinics that hadn't been authorized by the British Medical Association. Thankfully, the Queensland government just ignored them and they continued to help Elizabeth do her important work. In 1940, the government of New South Wales sent Elizabeth to America to present her findings to American doctors who were still struggling to develop effective treatments for polio. Remember, 1940, there wasn't a vaccine yet. So she tromps all over the U.S., her large mass of white hair covered by this rotating series of enormous hats. She talks at various hospitals and to various doctors who, for the most part, were treating her with like this mixture of like bemusement and vague tolerance um, until she went to the medical school of the University of Minnesota. And she met with two polio specialists named Dr. Millen Knapp and Dr. John Pohl. And they were both blown away by what she was doing and told her that she had to stay and work there. So they secured her an apartment. Uh, the city of Minneapolis would later buy her a house. And Elizabeth dedicated the next 11 years of her life to working with polio patients there. She also began to teach classes on her methods and over 300 doctors ended up coming to learn from her. Kenny treatment centers began to open up all across the U.S., the most famous one being the Sister Kenny Institute of Minneapolis, which opened in December of 1942. It's now called Courage Kenny Rehabilitation Institute. She was awarded multiple honorary degrees, and she was even summoned to a conference with President Roosevelt to discuss his treatment for his paralysis. So slowly, more and more of the naysayers began to come around and acknowledge that what she was doing may have been innovative and risky, but it was effective and humane. Stories began to appear about her in magazines and newspapers, and the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis paid her personal expenses and financed trials of her work. For only a year, she ended up getting into a disagreement with the head of the organization. Apparently, he was like, oh, let us show you how it's done. And she was like, no, I'm going to show you how it's done. And he booted her for daring to contradict him. In 1950, President Truman signed a congressional bill which gave her the right to enter and leave the U.S. at any time without a visa. This honor had only been given to one other person in the history of America, and that was General Lafayette during the Revolutionary War. The final years of her life were marked by continuing extensive work, but also hardship as she began to lose her battle with Parkinson's disease. She kept on traveling throughout the U.S. and Europe and Australia, trying to teach her methodology to as many medical practitioners as she could meet with. She tried to get the medical community to classify polio as a systemic disease, which they refused to do. She went to the International Congress on Polio in Copenhagen and was completely shunned by everyone and was not allowed to participate or speak. Her health kept on declining and declining, and finally she ended up returning to Australia. She had kept excellent records throughout her entire life, so she knew the exact number of polio patients that she had treated throughout her career. 7,828. By November of 1952, it was clear that she didn't have long to live. Hearing of her ailment, the renowned inflammation specialist, Dr. Irving Innerfield of New York, sent his new experimental drug, Trypsin, by airmail to Brisbane. It was put in a car and rushed to her home in Toowoomba, Queensland. And it was given to her on November 29th, but it was too late. Elizabeth Kenny died the following day, November 30th, 1952, at the age of 72. The funeral was held the next day, and she was buried beside her mother in Nobby Cemetery. Aside from the memorial homes and clinics and even playgrounds uh, named in her honor, her work also lives on through some of the more well-known humans who she had treated or whose doctors had utilized her methods. 
I remember I mentioned Rosalind Russell's nephew was treated by her and recovered. The actor Alan Alda in his biography describes how when he had polio as a child, his mother used the therapeutic treatments that she'd learned about from Elizabeth Kenney's book, and because of that, he was able to regain full use of his legs. The actor Martin Sheen also talked about how he had had polio as a child, and thanks to the fact that his doctor was familiar with Elizabeth's methodology, he was able to also completely recover. My sources today were Wikipedia, The Polio Place, the Australian Dictionary of Biography, and the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Sister Elizabeth Kenny. Please join me tomorrow, September 21st, when we celebrate the birth and life of Pramila Jayapal, civil rights, women's rights, and immigrant rights activist, and the first Indian American member of the House of Representatives. See you then. Thank you.